I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Just this is our second shot this morning after I knocked the microphone over. I know, I know, I know. I, I'm surprised you were you were prepared to persist. Because I often <laughs> I often stop and restart, and yet this time They're quite arbitrary moments. Dropping the, often ten minutes through a conversation. <laughs> dropping, dropping the microphone wasn't enough this time. I mean, it, it is the tripods, right? It is the it tripods. Is, uh, it's not. No, it's a pretty cumbersome way of uh, mounting a microphone. I mean, how hard is it to have a tri- like a tripod that's like an equilateral triangle? <laughs> that's all it takes. It's not the most stable shape, that's no, for sure. But an equilateral triangle would be like the most stable structure possible. Mm. It couldn't fall. So, mm. you know, so we're recording on Saturday morning just because yeah. of some other commitments this week. So it's a, yeah. bit, it's a bit of a strange experience, isn't it? It is. It, it we... is. It's a very atmospheric, gloomy day, and I think pretty consistent with the tone of a lot of these uh, these shows this week, though. Yeah. So let's 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 get into the first one. Yeah, absolutely. So our first show this week is uh, Blackbird, mm. which is a mini series, um, uh, an American crime drama. Mm. Developed by uh, the famous uh, crime author Dennis Lehane mm. and based on a 2010 autobiographical novel, uh, In With the Devil, mm. A Fallen Hero, A Serial Killer and A Dangerous Bargain for Redemption. It's really sort of the trend, isn't it, with you know, these true crime stories? You've got to have, you've got to have uh, a little um, a head, heading, then a little colon, then a, yep. you know, a, a triplet. Mm. Um, when you say autobiographical, is this actually a true story? It is. It's based on a true story. That happened to Lehane. No, not, oh. not, not, not Dennis okay. Lehane. I was going to say, was, no. is this Dennis Lehane's backstory? No, no, okay. no, no, no. So he's, uh, he's, it would be amazing if it was, but no, he's, uh, he's obviously worked on the script and the characterization okay. and so forth. But it's based on a, uh, you know, autobiographical novel um, that was by James Keane oh, and okay, Hillel right. uh, yep. Levin. And it's, um, it's only a six episode miniseries, mm. which is interesting as well. So quite a narrow, quite a narrow focus. And it premiered on uh, July the eighth on on Apple TV Plus, probably one of the more hyped series of the year. Certainly one of yeah. the most hyped Apple TV Plus series. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got a it's got a real uh, murderer's row mm. in terms of cast. Mm. The pun. Mm. Um, so, I see, I see you did that. <laughs> nice. So uh, James Jimmy Keane, who's uh, played by Taron Egerton, uh, plays a promising young football star, who whose life didn't quite turn out the way he'd hoped. So instead, he turns to a life of crime, dealing mm. narcotics. Um, and then he's arrested as part of a, a wider police sting hmm. called uh, evocatively Operation Snowplow. Hmm. So he accepts a plea deal, um, but is then obviously done over as a result of that and is sentenced to to 10, or t- 10 to 12 years of hard time. But he's given the option of a, of a deal. Hmm. And the deal is this, given his uh, relatively charming personality and his gift well, of the gab... Let's not go too far. <laughs> Let's not go too far with the personality stuff. So he's often he's often an opportunity uh, for his sentence to be commuted mm. in exchange for uh, um, talking to a serial killer yep. or a suspected serial killer in in a high maximum security jail and hoping to elicit further information, possibly even yep. confessions, about uh, the disappearance of uh, a number of young girls in the area. So, for me at least, um, this series one of the strengths is is mm. the cast. So Taron Egerton, um, obviously quite well known British actor, mm. uh, plays a Midwestern Chicago and native. Mm. I thought I think quite convincingly, and uh, Paul Walter Hauser um, stars as as well co-stars mm. as the suspected serial killer behind bars. Um, Ray Liotta. Is also in the cast as That's poignant, poignant yeah, to say, one of his last roles, and as well. I wondered because halfway through, or toward, like 
early in this pilot, there are some scenes between Ray Liotta and Taron Egerton. He plays his father. Mm. Um, and he comes to visit him in prison and stuff. But later on, his mother tells... His mother comes to prison. The Taron Egerton character's mother comes to prison and says that his father has suffered a stroke. Mm. And it, it's funny. On the one hand, it seems like a really pivotal plot point because she says, you know, the reason your father suffered a stroke was because of you being in prison. Mm. And it's part of what galvanises him into trying to get out of prison as soon as possible and so taking the deal. But I, I wondered whether that was written in to accommodate Ray Liotta being like mm. I, I I wasn't quite sure what the timeline was. So was this being mm. filmed when Ray Liotta died? Is that or, or is it just a kind of poignant coincidence? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I do know it is one of his his last roles, okay. and there is definitely a poignancy yep. um, to his role. And it's a very Liotta like role. Yes, absolutely. The kind of the gruff <laughs> kind of the gruff patriarch. Yeah, yeah. Someone. Uh, yeah, exactly. A patriarch who's who can see. Mm. The, his uh, his empire crumbling yep. and his uh, his lineage also mm. uh, turning to dust. So there is yeah he's also plays a, a former detective mm. and his son is behind bars. Um, interestingly, structurally about um, about the show as well is that um, it modulates between or cuts between mm. the scenes in the present um, with Tyrone Edgerton's character in maximum security prison and uh, flashbacks to to the original investigation process. Mm. And there uh, we have Greg Kinnear, who plays one of the the um, initial detectives, and Sepide Moafi, mm. who are uh, uh, collaborating in trying to, uh, to secure enough evidence and ultimately a conviction mm. of this um, suspected serial killer. So to me, at least, uh, this is this is a show that it was just it's right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got so many different genres that that I love yep. put into a blender. And uh, it's basically turned into a soup that uh, I just I just drank right up. Yep. So this is this is totally in your wheelhouse. You love you love the prison escape genre, but even more, you just love the prison genre. Um, love prison. Love prison prison movies. I love procedurals. You love procedurals. So I love serial kill dramas. And look, I'm I'm going to have to disappoint you here a little bit because I thought this was awful. What? So. <laughs> I mean, I, I like, I, I thought this was the most, I mean, this is, it's obviously the most hyped series of the year. I thought this was the most overhyped series of the year. Wow. Like, I, I had massive expectations like you. I mean, I, I'm not as into the prison genre, but I love, you know, crime procedurals. I love serial killer dramas. Oh, so many things. So, firstly, I thought the flashback scenes just felt like a bargain basement true detective. Like, I thought, <laughs> I thought this was like true detective season 20. And I, I thought, I mean, I thought... I like Greg Kinnear insofar as I think he can act, as opposed to Taron Egerton, which we'll get onto in a oh, moment. Really? But I even there, I thought like Greg Kinnear and True Detective was just bad juju. <laughs> like I did not feel that Greg fit Greg Kinnear fit, and you know, like the the main suspect, you know, the serial killer, Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's into like Civil War reenactments and yeah. Revolutionary War reenactments. Yeah. I thought the flashbacks felt like. True Detective reenactment. This is just like watching True Detective cosplay. Like this to me True was. True Detective like, was so good though. Why? Why did you want to just you know run it back? You see, I thought even when True Detective was coming out, I thought True Detective was like diminishing returns. Like even in the first season, I thought that it had amazing atmospheric moments, but it was dragged down by a kind of writerliness and a wordiness, which meant I thought that the, the conclusion of season one was pretty weak. So I thought this really? was like, and I thought this was Detective like Rustin Cole. I thought this was like you were out. This was like season twenty. Um, I thought this was kind of like watching Apple TV Plus desperately trying to do HBO. Like I, I, I felt the plot mechanics 
were so threadbare. Like it was, it was like watching plot mechanics. Like boom, boom, boom. This happened. That happened. I, I couldn't. And I, but even then, I couldn't believe that Taron Egerton wasn't in the other prison by the end of the episode. And I just, I thought there was stuff that was so implausible. So in in the flashback scenes, for example, the Greg Kinnear character comes across the serial killer suspect, mm. and everything screams out that he's done it. Mm. But all the other detectives in this jurisdiction just continually, on the one hand, emphasise how weird this guy is. Yeah. But on the other hand, emphasise it couldn't possibly be him, even though he confessed to it. <laughs> so I, ju- I just thought the mechanics are really clunky. Mm. But all that pales <laughs> in comparison to Taron Egerton. And I'm going to put it out there. I, I don't think Taron Egerton can act, at least in natural, really? at least in naturalism. Like, I think he works, say, in something like Rocket Man, which is, you know, you know, melodrama. He works in something like Kingsman, which is melodrama. But I, I thought he was friggin' awful here. Like, really? I thought this was like watching an Instagram icon try to act. <laughs> I thought he had no charisma. It was like it's like instead of acting, he was working out his face. <laughs> I found the character so annoying too. Like, really? All, all this character, like this character. I love this character. This to, to me, this character. Like, what was he? He was just a buff guy who was interested in eating healthy and working out. Like, Jim, <laughs> Jim was the he was ideal. Entrepreneurial. Well, we didn't see much of that. And like, it's like, it's like, I know he was trying to get out of Jim. Uh, sorry, out of out of out of jail. But I kind of felt like jail was the ideal. Like, as long as you get contraband salad, as long as you could get salad on the down low, I thought like jail's the perfect place. This guy, he loves working out. There's nothing else interesting about him. I don't know. I, I can't believe you found him convincing. I yeah. just, I just thought it was like it's just like one pretty boy pose after another. Really? I, I thought it was Taron Egerton uh, really leveling up. I thought it was Taron Egerton channeling, you know, the great seventies method actors, in some ways, really losing himself and you know immersing himself, borrowing into his role. I felt the opposite. Like, I felt the presence of people like Ray Liotta and Greg Kinnear just completely showed him up. I mean, I just also like on top of that, I did not pay him as an American or as Ray Liotta's son, like it was like watching, it was like watching an annoying guy from a British, from a British lad drama, in a sanctimonious Dennis Lehane drama. Was that just because of his the lingering effect of his star image and prior project? I think it's also because I found his accent really unconvincing. I thought it was just like, like some actors I think can do a really good American accent. Like I think Russell Crowe can do a good American accent. Nicole Kidman. Um, I just, I think Claire Foy, as an English woman, did a really good American accent in Unsane. This American accent, I just found hammy and just, I, I just, I found him, I found him so distantiating. Like it was just, it was like watching an Instagram icon working out their face <laughs> rather than acting. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, look, I agree. There's, there's a slightly histrionic register to a lot of what happens, but I think that's completely consistent with this, this show. Yeah, I just, I don't know. And look, it's funny because I was open to it. And, you know, we've actually been anticipating it for several weeks on the podcast. And I know that one of our other friends loves it. I just found it mechanical. Like, I just I just felt like I was so aware of every plot beat. Even the atmosphere was mechanical. Like, there's a scene in the, in the flashback scenes where they try to establish atmosphere by Greg Kinnear opening a window. He's fixing a window. I'm I, like, I'm I like, like that. I was like, how long is this thing going to last? <laughs> I like that. Those little details with, this, with the screwdriver. Sure. I mean, I like them. You just know all those little uh, little sure. details are going to accrete until it, it you know, amounts to something quite significant. Is it? <laughs> I mean, it's texture. I like yeah. texture. But after a certain point, I was like, how long is Greg Kitty going to be working on that window? Then I was like, is a window a clue? Is a window going to be a clue? And then <laughs> yeah, I was just, So you didn't like the atmospherics of the Midwest, look, look, all those aerial shots of the, the cornfields? I thought, and... I thought the atmosphere was good there. 
Yeah. And I thought that, I mean, at least it wasn't Taron Egerton just looking at the camera. Like, at <laughs> least it was... I Also, like, I don't know. Like, it was, a, it was a show where, you know, like, there's so much about... Like, how can I put it? Like, at, at its worst, True Detective could be very turgid. Mm. And, and I appreciated that this was trying to go the opposite direction yeah, at times. Yeah. Like, it, it had a kind of jacked-up energy. It was very fast-paced and... Yeah, I mean, at, at least it, it had a kind of steroid kind of energy. Yeah. But I found after a while that just became turgid in its own way. It's like, okay, I, I, felt like I felt like in every scene, no matter what was happening plot-wise, Taron Egerton was just working out. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it, it felt like watching... Well, it's a prison. It's a prison show, Billy. I mean, that's what people do in prison. But it's a thriller. <laughs> it, it's meant to be an intricate psychological thriller. And I just found that there was nothing about him that was at all convincing. And, and I thought... Again, I, th- I just found the the plot beats very mechanical. Oh, attractive FBI agent comes in. Oh, like in, like I, I just I, 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 again, I felt it was like mm. watching Apple TV Plus trying to ape HBO, and certainly the production quality was there. Mm. But I just didn't feel like the content matched it, and I wondered if there was something just a bit dated about Dennis Lehane's style. Like this was like watching, it had that same lurid, as you said, histrionic quality as like say Gone Baby Gone. But yeah. just, just I don't know, 10 years later, I wasn't that into it's, it. It's timeless. That is a timeless <laughs> style. I thought it was. These genre beats are timeless too. Yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. Wow, like okay. I, I know. Did you I, find that the, the pacing, the pacing was fast, it was fast, snappy. I mean, six, it's only six I episodes. Mean, so it, I think what really stood out for me yep. was just the momentum the narrative momentum this had compared to so many other shows where, you know, they're just treading water in their pilot. I thought it was, well, yes and no. Like, on the one hand, the pilot is all, all about getting him in prison with this psychopath, and that doesn't even happen in the pilot. Mm. But so I didn't think that was that fast-paced. I mean, I thought it was fast-paced in the way that a clock is fast-paced. Like, it was, <laughs> it was fast-paced but mechanical. And a lot of the energy, I thought, didn't go to go towards the psychological stuff or the narrative stuff but just this jacked up always working out instagram aesthetic which i just i don't know i i was surprised like wow. I, I i thought this is such a bad take by you <laughs> this is a terrible take well i kind of it's interesting because i got curious and I, I looked at reviews online and like on rotten tomatoes and metacritic it's got like a hundred percent it's got like a, I haven't got it's not that high it's like 80 85 percent but there were quite a few reviews which were like is it just me or is this a bit overrated? And that, that was that was how I felt. Like I felt like this is so overhyped and maybe a little bit augmented by the fact of Ray Liotta being in it that look, I mean I I'm I've got nothing against it, but I just I was it, it was a big anticlimax for me, really? and I thought okay. that it was. Didn't you think the the delay in in the the two of the meeting mm. actually added to the anticipation, and I, th- I, I think suppose it, it, it built up. You know, a real head of steam. I think national climax where they actually finally. I, mean, I, think, I think it would have if I believed that the Taron Egerton character was a character, but just without that, without any sense of him being anything other than a bundle of Instagram bro energy, yeah. I just I didn't. What about Paul Walter Hauser character? He, he was, was good. So enigmatic. He, he and... was good. So I thought. I thought the one effective scene, the one thing I thought was quite powerful was the interrogation scene with him. Mm. I thought that was well done. But even then, you had this stupid chorus of police officers kind of interjecting. But when it was just him one-on-one with Greg Kinnear, mm. that was good. That mm. was a well-written scene, well, I thought. One thing that they, they do keep re- uh, returning to, I've seen all the episodes yeah, as, right. they, as okay. they've dropped. You're a, you're a hard uh, Oh, Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is I know, I know that might seem implausible given... Um, 
he appears mm. to you know, nakedly confess mm. to these crimes. But there is a live question about whether he is just a misfit, a fantasist, sure. you know, uh, a false confession artist in order to gain garner attention, or whether he is actually, um, uh, you know, a well planned, um, you know, well executing serial killer. Mm. So that is that is an ongoing so ambiguity makes- in in his in his character and persona, and you know. Whether which is the which is the true self is it his fantasies or is it sure. his you know his quite um, enigmatic exter- external you know uh, unprepossessing um, appearance and that makes sense that sounds more intriguing and mm. it, and you keep swinging either way but it's interesting because I mean and I thought he had a lot more presence than Taron Edgerton mm. I thought that actor mm. right off the bat I guess just in terms of intrigue like. To my surprise, I didn't find the pilot intriguing at all. Like I just, I found, I felt like I was watching wow. plot dynamics. So look, it sounds like I mean, I, at, in theory I'm a hard out, but your incredulity makes me think oh, I should give it another go. But look, I was, wow. I was surprised. Okay. I, I, w- I was not, I was not impressed by this in the wow. way that I expected to be. Wow, I think this is fantastic. Um, I, I absolutely lapped this up. I watched it straight away, and I've been watching it every every week as it's been as it's been dropping i think this is the most cinematic uh series of the year so it was interesting like this made me realize like if netflix is if the netflix house style is drone shots then i think the apple tv plus house style is like painterly panoramic landscapes yes like barry linden style landscapes yes that that i can't fault yeah i just i didn't think the content <laughs> lived up, uh, lived up to it i, I think like, this would make a brilliant three-hour epic crime movie and maybe it would maybe mm. maybe that's part of it maybe the, the mm. yeah maybe stretching it out was what made it feel labored to me but to me when i only just when i discovered it was only six episodes long yep. i was actually quite crushed so, because th- this is I, I say i savored this like a <laughs> like a fine dining meal i so yeah. i feel like i feel like this is our pilot club equivalent of the Kind of at the movies episode where Margaret gives Dancer in the Dark five stars and David gives it no stars. Yeah, I'd give this ten out of five. Yeah, I, I give it like this is everything I want in TV. I'd give it two and a half for the production <laughs> values, but look, history history ended up favouring Margaret on Dancer in the Dark. So maybe maybe you'll be right here, but I'm for the moment I'm an out. Wow. Okay. I'm, it's early to call, but to me this is the first. Drop everything and watch this you couldn't show be, of the year. You couldn't be further in. I could not be further in. This is probably my favourite show of the year. Okay, on to our next show this week. This is also a limited six-part series. Mm, uh, seven um, parts, I think. Oh, seven parts. Mm. Okay, um, but yeah, similar. And mm. it's funny, I know we love our one-word titles, mm. but I think this is quite close, just because each word is a single syllable. Yeah. So Jeff Bridges is the old man. <laughs> Hemingway-esque. Hemingway-esque. So this is another really anticipated or hyped show we've been is, waiting for yeah. it for a couple of weeks it's um developed by jonathan e steinberg and robert levine it's based on a novel by thomas perry and mm. there are really only two characters in this pilot um two old men yes so on the one hand there's a lot of ambiguity about who is the actual old who titular is old man who is the old man exactly um there's a lot of old men there's a there's a, there's a rogues gallery of old men <laughs> exactly it's old men up the wa- up the wazoo um so Jeff Bridges plays... If you're a young man, don't apply. Yeah, exactly. And in, in this series, there's so much country for old men. <laughs> like, the country is just old men. Um, so Jeff Bridges plays Dan Chase, and John Lithgow plays Harold Harper. And mm. both of these men have intersecting stories. But the pilot is quite elliptical mm. and almost kind of primal in the mm. way in which it envisages their story. So mm. on the one hand, Dan, the Jeff Bridges character, lives alone, seems like a bit of a hermit. 
until someone shows up at his doorstep and tries to kill him. Mm. And at that point, we realise that he has been living in hiding for mm. 30 years. Mm. And he's got a very particular set of skills. A very particular set of <laughs> skills, exactly. Um, and he goes on the run. Mm. On the other hand, we have Harold, played by John Lithgow. We know that his daughter and her husband, maybe his son, his wife, but his, you know, his child and their partner died mm. in tragic circumstances and that he's now raising the grandchild, that he's aligned with the FBI, high up in the FBI, and that he's somehow involved with the event that led Dan, the Jeff Bridges character, going on to going on the run. Mm. And the kind of that that emerges midway through the episode. And at the end it well the, the second half of the episode is um, Harold calling Dan from a covert number saying, you just have to disappear again. Mm. And Dan saying, well, I don't want to do that because I've got a daughter. Mm. Who I think is played by Alia Shawkat, although we only ever hear her mm. on the phone. There's a showdown at the end. Dan escapes, goes yeah. on the run. So yeah. it's kind of an interesting series because there are really only two characters in it. Mm. And both of the characters at some level are entirely isolated, mm. like visually. So... For the first half of the film, it's only so the first half of the episode. It's only really Jeff Bridges in the frame. Mm. So I just wrote down some of the ways this happens. Like he talks to his daughter, but only talks to her on the phone. Mm. And even then, it sounds like he's talking to a voice recording. Mm. There's a scene where he sees a doctor early on, but the doctor doesn't enter the frame. There's after he shoots the intruder, police come to his house, but there's a kind of long panning shot up the corridor to the police, who we only briefly glimpse. Mm. We do see his wife, who developed Alzheimer's, but only in flashback. Mm. She's now dead. And the only you know, the only conversations he has in the frame are with his dogs. Mm. So there's a really... You could argue his dogs are characters yeah, in their own exactly. They've got, they've got uh, human names and human and, attributes. And, and they end up saving him mm. in the final showdown scene. So there's a really profound sense of like spatial isolation. Mm. So, you know... To the point where if anybody enters the frame... Well, the only people who enter the frame or who enter Dan's personal space are representatives of his past. Mm. And as soon as anybody enters the frame or enters his personal space, he immediately reads it as a threat. Mm. So the series, in a really powerful way, like captures this bubble of space mm. that he's moved through for kind of 30 years. And... In doing so, like it often reminded me of that film, The Company You Keep, the Robert Redford film. Did you mm. see that? Yeah, like, yeah. So this feels like a, an even more distant echo of the 70s surveillance mode. Mm. But it also kind of felt to me like a really interesting vision of how personal space feels, like when you're old. Mm. So on the one hand, Jeff Bridges is more isolated and you know, than ever before. But there's a different kind of fecundity to the space around him. And although there's more emptiness around him, that emptiness is pregnant in a different kind of way as well. So mm. it's this weird kind of space where, or this weird situation where as an old man, especially an old man with this kind of past, he's surrounded by this this ever-growing bubble, which is isolating, but also strangely pregnant with meaning as well. Mm. So yeah, mm. what, 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 I found it really mm. atmospheric and yeah. evocative. Well, what, what, one what, of the, what one of the you live think? questions that... The opening of the series is whether he is suffering some sort of cognitive decline. Well, that's true. Yep. Yeah. And uh, whether he's got control of all his faculties. Mm. And he's obviously very fearful of what happened to his wife as mm. well. So there's, there's a profound sense of entropy mm. in that 
in his personal world and mm. personal space, which I think I agree I agree is is visually captured mm. um, very strikingly even, and ably. Even the way like he's nearly always shot in darkness mm. from a distance mm. or framed by doorways, and after the kind of the plot gets going, he's really in one space for very long. Mm. He's always moving, driving, running, mm. but even then. He's very alone in the frame. Mm, that's right. That's right. So there's a propulsiveness definitely to this to this pilot. Mm. And the plot mechanics, like you said, are not at all um, transparent. Mm. So to me, this really reminded me of those 90s style Tom Clancy thrillers mm. with a very strong lead role, mm. quite a strong uh, bureaucratic antagonist potentially mm. or ally mm. we're not ex- exactly sure kind of like an individual against the system yeah mm. yeah but with with a with an antagonist who's actually secretly sympathetic mm. towards the protagonist mm. as well and those the the power of those two performances are quite mm. are quite striking and i think they they play off off against each other very well mm. even though they're not actually brought into the same physical space at any point i think it's you know for for a show like this where you only have two actors and the actors are alone for most of it. Like, you really need actors with presence. You do. And both of these actors, I mean, they are almost literal scene chewers. Yes. Like, they, they <laughs> seem to be literally chewing their words. And I think you also want actors who have an essentially comic sensibility. So mm. this is the kind of show that could get really dour mm. and really somber. Like, at times, it's almost like John Wick with old dudes. Yes. And John Wick is already pretty monotone. Mm. You can imagine if you pair that with the you know, traumas of old age, it could become a real drab fest. Yeah. But I feel like both Lithgow and Bridges are, are, are kind of comic actors in the profound sense and that they always, they both, they both got a twinkle in their eye. Yeah. And they both always seem to be basking in some great cosmic joke. Yes. So, and they ha- they both have a kind of energy that's so contagious that I, watching this, even though it's not in no way a comedy, I often just laughed yeah. contagiously when they delivered lines. Yes. Especially yes. Jeff Bridges. Yes, Jeff Bridges. Especially I mean, Jeff Bridges. He, he literally looks like he's chewing, chewing yeah. lines. He's exactly. always chewing. His mouth's always exactly. moving. Exactly. Yeah. Such yeah. a mobile, yeah. 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 prehensile mouth. So I remember, what you, I remember you saying something. Um, it's like the litmus test for a great actor yeah. is whether you'd want to watch them on the phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and obviously the iconic Liam Neeson scene in... Yep in Taken mm. is uh, is a real uh, yardstick for mm. that test. But because a lot of this is actually phone conversations mm. between the two uh, or between mm. him and his daughter, um, they are they are nonetheless compelling. And beyond a certain point, you don't... I mean, obviously you care about the narrative. It's just like just watching Jeff Bridges and John Lisko have this high-stakes phone conversation <laughs> is fun in itself. Yeah. I, I just... Yeah, and I just... It's weird too, isn't it? Because it made me realise that like Jeff Bridges' own age is quite mercurial. Like when we watched films like The Big Lebowski in the nineties, he seemed quite young to me. Mm. But even then, he was quite old. Yeah. Like he was like in his fifties, yeah. I think, by then. So, yeah. and we we only got to know Jeff Bridges as a middle-aged man. Exactly. So we like, never really had the sense of young, you know, attractive Jeff Bridges. Cut his way, stuff yeah. like that. So it is it is weird watching this because that weird combination of like eternal youthfulness. An eternal oldness <laughs> is there again. They're, they've always been present in yeah, Jeff Bridges' both, star image for bo- us. They're both there. Yeah, <laughs> he's always been playing, you know, precocious and a little bit too old. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. It's always been that's, those, those warring tensions. I mean, that's been a play. That's the dude, right? Him, yeah, the Big Lebowski. Like he's like a middle-aged slacker. <laughs> so like he's old, but also. Yeah. Like Arrested Development, yeah. So and John Lithgow too. Yep. Even when mm. he played a villain in something like uh, 
uh, cliffhanger. It's like infantile. Yes, there was something infantile. Or like but there third, was also third something rock from really, the sun. Yeah, yeah. really um, geriatric about him. Yeah, so yeah. Those, those energies are, are, are nice and neatly yeah. paired. Are you familiar with the backstory of the shooting of this? No, I'm not. Um, so this was actually two thirds of, of the way through shooting mm. and when the pandemic hit. And, the, first, uh, the first wave of the pandemic. Yeah, March 2020. Wow. And the reason for the really extensive delay is because uh, Jeff Bridges was diagnosed with lymphoma. Wow. Okay. And not only that, he contracted COVID and almost died. Wow. So it's it's very interesting because obviously there's there's mm. scenes here shot from 2020 and shot, uh-huh. scenes shot from 2022. But also it gives his physical presence a different kind of fragility as yes. well and a different kind of vulnerability. Yes. And poignancy, this yeah. whole narrative really mm. tracks with his own personal mm. uh, recent life story as well. It's interesting because something I often think is, you know, we're so attuned to films about where we're at in life. Mm. I think, you know, when you know, when we get to our seventies, what kind of films and series would appeal to us? What mm. will what will it look like the stuff that's marketed to us then? Like will mm. we be watching I hope we're watching stuff like this instead of, you know, Best New Marigold Hotel. <laughs> but just between this and um Night Sky, Dark Sky, Night Sky, the Sissy Space. Yeah. I feel like we've seen two series that really capture age in a dignified and and almost romantic kind of way. So mm. both there and here, I think there's a similarity. Like in that, in both. So those who hadn't heard, haven't heard the episode. Like Dark Sky was about, or Dark Skies was about a couple who you know they've lost a child, they're living alone in a farm, but they happen to have a portal to outer space in mm. their back shed. So in both that series and this series, the personal space, the space around the old people or old person has dramatically increased. Like the world has receded from them. Mm. But that emptiness has a new sense of possibility. And there's almost something sensual about that emptiness here. Like something that happens a lot in this series is Jeff Bridges will be alone in a space that's very sparse. But the sparseness almost has that, you know, has has a kind of sensuality to it, mm. which the director often figures as trickling water. Mm. You know, there's like this sense that things have dried up, mm. but what remains is all the more precious. Mm. Mm. And the advice that John Lithgow gives to him is just, you know, disappear as much as possible, retreat as much as possible. Mm. And you sense that Jeff Bridges also wants to do like he, he, he's torn when it comes to his daughter because on the one hand he wants to be there for her but he wants to insulate her from him from his own past mm. and also distance himself from that past as well as so the whole thing is about trying to move further away from people mm. do you know what I mean it's, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, I know it's, what you it's very evocative he's very uh, visually you know spatially isolated mm. but like you say because his memories are so robust and mm. um, fecund he's never really alone and every every landscape he passes through is is yes. you know, entwined with with his memories there is a flashback in this pilot is there is there not mm. to a scene of where he makes a decision to mm. settle down mm. interestingly he's obviously played by a young actor but then there's some sort of cgi modification mm. of the face did you think that it was, was funny it was funny because i, I didn't initially realize that was a flashback i mm. thought it was just another scene that was playing out in mm. that same diner or some other part of the plot mm. and i was disoriented at first because the plot was so kind of hermetically sealed before this point mm. and yeah i only realized that it was a flashback because like that guy looks like jeff bridges <laughs> yeah. and like okay maybe it is jeff bridges yeah but it's funny like that style it reminded me a lot of Twin Peaks The Return as well. Like, you know, Twin Peaks mm. The Return has that sense of real, the world is, or the world as we once knew it is kind of at a muffled distance. Yeah. It's very dark. It's very inky. Yes. And yes. 
Have you seen the finale of Twin Peaks? No, I have not. No. I won't give anything away, but there's a long car drive with Kyle MacLachlan and just driving at night with cars in the background. And just the feel of it is very similar mm. to Jeff Bridges' drives here. So just that mm. sense that the American heartland we once knew or a, a gener- how a generation once experienced it is just is muffled. Yeah. Like it's like the past is very muffled, very far away. Yes. It reminded me a lot of the Twin Peaks third yes. season in yes. that respect. It tracks against the narrative here where he's effectively disavowed his past, he's created a new identity, mm. a new sense of social and you know, familial stability in this mm. new environment. Mm. All these deeds or misdeeds that he performed for the FBI or um, some sort of you know, mm. arm's length mm. um, uh, contractor type role, mm. uh, again, at such an enormous distance from the, from the present. Mm. Um, and like you said, there is a luminosity to the way that this is shot. Mm. It's almost like a kind of Renaissance painting. It's beautiful. Where, you know, throws each character's face and the crags of their mm. face into into kind of quite exquisite relief. Absolutely. I mean, Jeff Bridges' face is a landscape here. It's, <laughs> it's the main landscape it we traverse. It's exactly, yeah. And, you know, again, just it could so easily be sombre and it could so easily be dour, but just the strange richness of that emptiness and the strange pregnancy of that sparseness and that inherent comic almost optimism mm. that Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow radiate turned it into a very beautiful, gave it a very beautiful kind of resilience mm. in the face of the future, in the face of old age, in the face mm. of the past yeah. coming back yeah. as well. So I know it's not, it doesn't have to be an either or obviously, but like this for me was everything that oh, don't. Blackbird was not. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do Blackbird like that, Billy. Resident, do not do Blackbird like it, that. It was in, in, <laughs> like this kind of burnished atmosphere, yeah. incredibly like present and yeah. kind of prescient actors yeah. and just a plot that emerged yeah. in such a kind yeah. of powerful way. Yeah. I, I don't know, look, in, in fact, I don't know whether the plot is the, I think it's probably the least interesting thing yep. about this pilot and probably this show. Yep. It's probably the most conventional and 90s that, style, um, Tom Clancy-esque yeah, kind I, of I thriller. Think, I think more muted than that. Yeah. I think more muted yeah. and melancholy. Yeah, and maybe it's not even the emergence of the plot, but the sense of emergence yes. itself. And that's a very 90s thing. This sense of a possibility, something outside the world as we've known and processed it, just gradually coming to the surface. That sense of emergence, I think, I think what I liked. And I think maybe what made Jeff Bridges and John Lisko seem so dynamic here, like mm. the fact that we can't entirely situate yeah. the relationship between them yeah. keeps their charisma on its toes definitely in no, a really powerful is, way. Yeah, this is a great asset of the modern televisual mm. landscape. Mm. Uh, Something like this would never be made as a movie because no. the actors are not commercial enough. They're mm. too old. Mm. Maybe the, the plot is too enigmatic. Mm. But here we have we can just bask mm. in the in the charisma of two great thespians exactly as they go on a journey through the Midwest. And and we've often talked in this podcast, haven't we, about a certain kind of post quality slowness that can be really tiresome. This is perfect slow television. Mm. I think you know, mm. like it's slow. It's mm. it's slow, but it's it's slow burning. Yes, it's a slow burn kind of experience so look i'm yeah. I, I loved it like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a hard in for this yeah look i'm, I'm an in um you know it's not quite blackbird yeah. in terms of quality yeah not everything can be billy no i mean it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't do what like yeah, it, it doesn't match blackbird in terms of like instagram attitude <laughs> and in terms of absence of atmosphere now look yeah i mean it doesn't have to be an either or I, I loved it i thought this was great Okay, on to our third show for this week. Yeah. The strange and strangely magical <laughs> yes, I show, know. The Rehearsal. Um, this is a kind of spirit. So it's a show created by comedian Nathan Fielder. 
and it's kind of a spiritual sequel to Nathan for You. Were you a, you a fan of Nathan for I, You? I, I know nothing about Nathan for You. Have you seen Nathan uh, for You? I have. So we really got into it when it came out. Um, the basic premise of Nathan for You was that Nathan, kind of playing himself, would go around and advise failing businesses. Um, and it struck a really fine line between sincerity and comedy. Like you would often revitalise a business. Really? But at the so sa- it was like Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares for yeah, small businesses? But at the same time, there was like a parodic edge. And in particular, there were times when he'd parody management consulting rhetoric in particular. Right. So it trod a really fine line between sincerity and parody. The rehearsal is kind of a spiritual sequel to that. Yeah. And in some ways, it seems like the balance is slightly more towards authenticity, mm. at least by the end. It's got a wonderfully simple premise. Yeah. Um, Nathan helps people obsessively rehearse difficult situations in their life. <laughs> and each episode is a difficult situation. So as he puts it, um, maybe it's easy to choose a path when you can live the future first. Mm. And in this pilot episode, um, the person he's helping is a guy called Cor. He's a guy from Brooklyn. He's a member of a trivia team. He's been in the trivia team for 12 years. Um, trivia is obviously a really important part of his life. Yeah, he takes his trivia very seriously. He's very into trivia. Um, I think that's, yeah, we'll come back to that. I think that's actually an interesting part of the episode. But his, he comes to Nathan because everybody else in his trivia team has a master's degree. And when he joined the team, he told them he had a master's degree as well. But it was a lie. He's only got a bachelor's degree. Mm. And... Over the last 12 years, that's given him a certain amount of kudos in the group. And members of the group have also tried to get him jobs, help him find work on the basis of his master's degree. So he's asked Nathan to help him rehearse telling the group that he doesn't actually have a master's degree. And in particular, telling one member of the group, Trisha, that he hasn't got a master's degree. And actually, the whole thing becomes about his his conversation with Trisha, because Trisha's a little bit feisty mm. and he's apprehensive about how Trisha will respond. So... This, this is, you know, meta-television at its most brilliant. Yeah. We, we start with Nathan arriving at Cor's house and talking to him, making a few jokes, you know, connecting. And then Nathan reveals that he himself has already rehearsed this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And he, he says to Cor, do you remember some guys coming in to do some electrical work in your, or something like that, in your apartment last week? Cor says yes. Nathan says they were actually scoping out the apartment so to prepare for me coming. And then we, we cut to a scale replica of Cor's apartment we see Nathan rehearsing the conversation he had with Cor with another guy. Mm. And that is kind of the prelude to what happens. And, you know, it's very uncanny and very funny and very strange. And it, it makes it clear at some level that Nathan himself has an obsessive need to rehearse. Yes. And my sense is that Cor is a little bit on the spectrum and that Nathan is as well. Yeah. So there's a kind of generosity here in this show in helping people rehearse stuff, mm. um, you know, that causes anxiety of that kind. And things just escalate from there. So Nathan has a warehouse. The, the trivia takes place at a bar in Manhattan. I think it's Manhattan. Was it Brooklyn? Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Um, the Alligator it? Lounge. The Alligator Lounge. And Nathan has constructed a scale replica of the Alligator Lounge in yeah. the warehouse. And that scale replica is in itself an extraordinary spectacle. Yes. Like down to the nth degree, he's replicated all of it. And in fact, there's a bit where... Um, even the pizza oven. Even the pizza oven. And it's, I'm not sure if it's Nathan or Cor who says it, but one of them says that there's, there's something strange about entering a space that's indistinguishable from another. Yeah. And that, that uncanniness is there. And so a couple of things happen. And I know I'm giving quite a big recap, and it's a very unusual episode. Oh, it is. Um, 
first they try and suss out Trisha and what Trisha's like. So Nathan hires an actress mm. who contacts Trisha via her blog, does an interview with her to kind of get a sense of what Trisha's like. Then this actress plays Trisha back in the replica bar yeah. as they go through basically every permutation, every obstruction, every possible way the conversation could go wrong. And there's a very moving moment where they rehearse the worst possible opportunity, the worst possible outcome, which is that Trisha gets angry, she's very vocal about it, everyone in the bar starts commenting on, you know, why on earth would someone lie about having a master's degree? Yeah. And Trisha storms out. And as, as Nathan says to Cor, there's something comforting about the fact that you're doing this in the one space where you can't fail. Yeah. So, you know, and there's something very compelling about the show, and we'll talk about how it ends in a moment. Mm. But, you know, it's something I think it's very understandable, wanting to rehearse. It's almost like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Like being able to rehearse something over and over again. It's very compelling kind yeah. of emotionally. Well, most people do it, I think, unconsciously. Well, exactly. We rehearse yeah. stuff all the time. Yeah. And there's also something just fascinating logistically. Like Nathan has like specialised flowchart software. Yeah. To see, he comes up with decision, decision trees. trees. Yeah. <laughs> and just seeing the way in which he maps out all these contingencies is... So it's fascinating logistically. It's fascinating emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I... I I kind of loved it. Should we talk about the ending? Might as well mention the ending now. Maybe at the end. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, but what did you think? So, what was your take on it? Yeah, I think this was something that um, knowing nothing about Nathan mm. Fielder or nothing about mm. Nathan for you, his particular brand of comedy, mm. um, I thought the premise here and it gradually emerged. And I think the the way it merged as well was part of the genius of this mm. as well. Um, just through slow reveals, mm. you got a sense of the, the blurred or warped. Uh, gap between uh, appearance and reality here between the real world and his fictitious world and nathan himself is so awry yes so off kilter like it's 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 impossible to tell if he's authentic or not Mm. and he himself seems to find it difficult to read tone yeah or does he Uh, it's hard uh, to know it's very difficult to know whether it's it's a comic a very advanced committed comic persona Mm. or whether it's it's a character a person who's just Mm. slightly on the spectrum and he makes of that, um, that that particular quirk. Um, so the premise I thought I thought mm. was brilliant, a mm. high concept, mm. um, logistically ex- extraordinarily mm. difficult to achieve. You know, quite, imagine quite expensive recreating mm. replicas of someone's apartment or a whole bar makes on you, a sound sound stage. And it makes you fascinated. What are the other episodes going to be? <laughs> yeah. Like this episode in itself was as extraordinary as a whole season of a TV show. So yeah. to see where it's going to go from here yeah, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, and even the recreations. Um, that that happen, he's he's sort of queered the pitch a bit mm. because he's embedded certain clues in the trivia mm. oh, to, to that's, tip off. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> tip off core. That's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. So just to clarify that, um, core realizes that he's not going to be able to have the chat with Trisha because they meet one on one to do a trivia, just a you know a trivia duo night together, trivia trivia doubles night, and he realizes he's not going to be able to talk to Trisha if he doesn't know the trivia answers so nathan kind of incepts all that so nathan just basically gets all these extras to just drop trivia information you know whenever core happens to be walking past them in everyday life yeah so that that's hilarious and amazing like yeah people just saying stuff about oh you know isn't it crazy that, you know 30 percent of our plutonium comes from china like stuff like that <laughs> it's like on oh, my code is like uh, 1789 yeah. the date of the french revolution exactly <laughs> um yeah so that's that's brilliant and that that fine line between you know the the personas we present and mm. our authentic selves mm. are really problematized all throughout this show there's an incredible poignancy to both nathan's character who he 
he almost discloses that he probably is on mm. on the spectrum or at least suffers from mm. some sort of severe case mm. of social anxiety whereby he needs to rehearse mm. even basic social interactions and mm. basic um, you know, opportunities of getting to know someone, mm. befriend someone, um, engage in basic conversations mm. and, and understand the way conversational energy works and conversational momentum works and uh, the way we gradually disclose aspects of ourselves mm. and our lives to someone else. That's very true, isn't it? Like it does, that's a, that's a nice point. Like it does feel like, I mean, imagine you know, knowing people on the spectrum, one of the things that can be hard to read is at, at what pace and at what rate do you disclose yourself? Mm. And that feels like part of what this show mm. is rehearsing. Yeah. There's a wonderful scene where he takes a call to upstate New York mm. and he has rehearsed a lot of these conversations with an actor, yep. uh, but he's also staged all these interventions mm. to make it seem naturalistic mm. the way in which both of them disclose these personal mm. you know private sometimes painful intimate details about their lives and i imagine you know for people who are on the spectrum who, who are not neurotypical like there's something nice about seeing a show like this that is almost entirely devoid of kitsch mm. like it's, it's about two people basically it's about two people on the spectrum at some level who have both have a transformative experience and a really heartwarming experience that's funny and strange in equal measure but there's no cutesiness to it. No. I, I found I really identified with this in some ways too, just because like, I think we live in an era of kind of informational insatiability, mm. right? Like because we have information at our fingertips, I know whenever I'm interested in something, I've got to find out everything about it. Mm. So just say, I've, you know, the other day I was reading about Santa Cruz. And I was like, I, need, I became obsessed with Santa Cruz <laughs> as a city. I had to read everything about it. And so I feel like that's operating here and it makes sense of the trivia backdrop because mm. it's almost like for core, it's just as important to get every trivia question as it is to disclose the information to Trisha. Mm. And when Nathan asks him, you know, how, how did the night go, you know, after, after it all ends, he's like, oh, we won. We won trivia. And Nathan's like, no, how did it go with Trisha? Yeah. And it's almost like Trisha's like a trivia puzzle he has to solve. So yes. it's like his, his insatiable need to master trivia to get that information and his need to rehearse the situation with Trisha are part of the same process. Mm. And mm. so it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that what's at stake are his intellectual qualifications. Yes. Because, you know, it's clear that the masters is important to him because it cements his position in the group. Mm. And even though he's got a BA, he was the last person in the group to get a BA. Mm. So it just feels like between his obsession with trivia and his obsession with getting it right with Trisha, there's something very true there about the way we need to master information. Yes. And, 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 and manage. And the futility manage of information. in dealing with human interactions. Yeah, exactly. And um, you can obviously see the, the frustration that people mm. who suffer from autism have with engaging in uh, conversations with people just because of the infinite infinite permutations and, of you know the variety of conversation that can occur and, and the, just, the subtle mannerisms exactly and, you know emotional inflections that that can occur and i wonder whether like it's kind of funny like in a way it is a spectrum thing but also it just it seems like in a world where there's more and more online dating mm. but like like just the other day and not even dating like just the other day one of our family friends um and who you met you met Anne, roger and Anne, um she contacted my mum and said look you know i've got this friend of mine in Paris, he's really into film, he's really into rugby, I think he and Billy would get on, he'd be a great contact. So she emailed both of us mm. and wants us to kind of get in touch, which is really nice. And not even a relationship there, just a friendship. Mm. Mm. Where so often these days, we meet people 
whether romantically or friendship-wise, online. Mm. So, and, and there's something about that need when you meet someone online to just research them immediately. Yeah. So I, I felt in a way this was almost like it was about him telling Trish about the M, M, like not having a master's, but also at some level it was like watching online dating. Yes. Or watching people meeting in real, in real space and time after having met online or, or professionally. I think that's yeah. something that's very common more yeah. and more. You, know, you meet yeah. colleagues through Zoom. And then yeah. you meet them in, per in person for the yeah, first time. Yeah, so that's true. There was just something about true. there is that spectrum element, but also we live in a world where there's more and more. It's a more and more common experience to obsessively research people you've only, yeah, met, yeah, only yeah. met in the digital realm. Yeah, there's something I guess prescient with the pandemic and something. Well, exactly. You know, coming from this cocoon-like state, where exactly. All our interactions are online. Yep. Um, obsessively rehearsing yep. what it would be like to meet these people in real life, exactly. and all of a sudden meeting them yep. in this in this unstructured you know, chaotic environment, exactly. which can be very overwhelming to people. So there that, is something, yeah, pressing it about. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like in that sense, it makes you think what, what this guy, what cause experiencing when he goes into the bar in real life? Is that a bit like what we experienced when we were in a crowd for the first time? Yeah. Or when we, you and I went for a drive and you insisted we go to Cabravale Diggers, <laughs> even though even though I was like, Andrew, I don't think Cabravale Diggers is safe. Like, nah, just wear a mask. It, it was cough central. How did we not get COVID at Cabravale Diggers? Anyway, that's another story. Um, um, we, we... I think another interesting mm. aspect of this before mm. we discuss mm. this as well is I found this like a really great meditation on loneliness. I agree. As well. Mm. And navigating loneliness in, in a large city where often it can make you expose you as even as even more lonely than you would be mm. in in an, in an empty space. Mm. And you get a sense that the big reveal that Core is making here is that he didn't have a master's degree, but it's quite a low stakes reveal. Mm. And you feel that there's actually a reveal, several reveals behind this reveal. Mm. And there's something sublimated about this whole interaction and really his persona itself. There's something, we, we get a slight hint that his marriage has... Mm has um, not worked out and it's the greatest failure of his life. And that's just mentioned in, in passing. Mm. And really there's there's more work to be done behind this. And almost like building on that, the reveal is almost like to the trivia team, you are the most important people in my life. Yes. But <laughs> the, the, the reason it's high stakes, I think partly because of that obsession with information, but also because the trivia team are his family. Yeah. So what he's saying to them is, this is how much I see you as my family. Yeah. I would lie yeah. to be accepted by you. Yeah. Because I was the last one in, and yeah, exactly. uh, the most the most insecure there, and there was something about the show that reminded me a lot of uh, Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, I agree. The obsessive uh, cataloging. Yeah, cataloging, recreation, mm. um, artistic imperative to master mm. the chaotic nature of reality. And in both cases, you are remaking a simulation of New York. Yeah. To kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah. But as a as a response, first and foremost to to our human condition mm. our kind of existential i agree loneliness i agree as atomized individuals um and who, who will you know strive so much for human connection but will never really fully attain it i think that's really beautifully put and i think that explains why the ending is so beautiful yeah do you so, want to deal with it yeah so basically um it's an extraordinary kind of final sequence so core and trisha meet in the bar they have a preliminary conversation and trisha does seem a little bit feisty in that, in that, in that, in that early scene, I think she's a Billy girl. Yeah, I think she is a Billy girl. She's, she's, she's a massive Billy girl. Um, and I, even I was like, oh, I wonder how this is going to go. Mm. And then Core freezes, mm. and I don't think I've seen anything on television this year as suspenseful yes. as Core freezing. <laughs> and then he moves past it. He tells her, and she's fine with it. 
Yeah. And not only is she fine with it, she almost apologises to him for having made him feel that you know he had to, yeah. you know, that he had to impress them. And then it becomes this incredibly deep moment where he not only talks about why he lied about having a master's, but talks about his background, yeah. his father, the impediments he had to education when he was yeah. growing up. Yeah. And the way they put it is that it, it turns into the joy of a friendship strengthened. <laughs> yeah. So it's this beautiful, this beautiful kind of moment at the end where the friendship is really renewed. And there's also one like final moment where Nathan reveals that there was, you know, like he... So Nathan reveals to... So Nathan has to, I'm, It's so complex, I'm trying to get my yeah. head around it. So, so Nathan has to come... So obviously for Cor, it's, it's very important that he connected with Trisha, but because of the way his mind works, it's also very important that they won trivia. Yeah. So, you know, that informational insatiability. And Nathan has to come clean and say, well, actually, I got extras to plant all that information around you so you knew it. And Nathan rehearses telling Cor that. Yeah. But we never see the actual conversation with Cor no. about it. So there's this. It doesn't seem like he's that cool with it either. Yeah. Just it, it sort of uh, prefigures that he yeah. may actually have an issue with that. Exactly. So, so there's this beautiful ellipsis at the end where mm. we're left in the midst of one of Nathan's own rehearsals mm. with no clear sense of how it will end or mm. whether he will even have the courage to tell Cor. Mm. So Cor's story kind of comes to a beautiful conclusion. But Nathan is still hanging in this space of rehearsal. Yeah. Making it clear, I think, that the ultimate impetus behind the show is, is his need to rehearse yeah. his own life. So it's a yeah. beautiful, it's such a dexterous ending. Yeah. I think it, I think it captures something about the nature of love, whatever, yep. however you conceive that word. Mm. Um, so he doesn't just disclose, McCaw doesn't just disclose the fact that he... Um, had lied about his masters. He discloses really the source of all his deepest insecurities. Yep. In other words, his symptom. Yep. And it it's, suggests that perhaps you know the key to love is to love one symptom, mm. um, whatever it might might be. But um, you can't. It's it, there's something uh, irre- irreconcilable mm. about the symptom and something that recurs and something that you can never really overcome. And mm. at the end, despite the fact that Cora's seemingly had this enormous breakthrough mm. and really. You know, his obsession with trivia mm. um, was really some sort of displaced, mm. um, you know, fixation on insecurity, his mm. intellectual insecurity. When Nathan makes that disclosure, mm. he's still slightly disturbed by yeah, it. So exactly. there's that sense you can't quite move past your symptom. Am I remembering it right? Does Cor, is it with Core or the rehearsal for Core that we see? Uh, well, the, the rehearsal. So the rehearsal, the guy acts irate. Yep. But the rehears- but when he actually discloses it to Core as well, Core sort of yeah, it is ends, a bit quizzical. Like it's, it ends it doesn't be- seem like he's cool with it. It ends before Core solidifies a response. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah, yeah so it's suspended in that yeah. way. Um but there's something like his core mm-hmm. symptom and by extension Nathan's symptom cannot be overcome. No. It's something you just have to yep. know, maybe dis- disclose or reveal to the other or at least keep working through. And that makes sense right of why this has to be a series yes it can't be for nathan catharsis can't come with one encounter or no. one one kind of rehearsal it's got to be a continuous rehearsal yes so it's a, it's not a very nice neat yep. framing device at the mm. end mm. and then it just pans up to the the balloon mm. on the on the ceiling of mm. the uh recreated pub or the real pub we don't even know and that was one of the details wasn't it? the kind of the the balloon was the icing on the cake because in terms of the the texture of the of the pub because nathan had been there the week before and seen a balloon yeah so look this is obviously a beautiful show yeah an original show it's one of my f- favorites of the year already i'm, I'm a hard in yeah it's like this is a show that's it's it's comic there are times where i mm. laughed out loud mm. 
but it's so subtle and mm. it's it really works more almost as a, a drama mm. uh, but it's it's very profound very moving mm. very philosophical show i think this is a show that you know could launch a thousand mm. theses mm. because it is so uh, nuanced and, and as we said like just this pilot feels like a whole show in itself. I yeah. feel like I've had the emotional roller coaster I get from a whole show, so I'm fascinated to see yeah. the ones to come. Yeah, the show deserves, I think it certainly deserves all the acclaim that it's mm. been getting. Wonderful. Okay, on to our archive corner. Now, Billy, I know there's nothing you like more on a lazy Sunday. Sit down, recline with a nice little mocktail, and watch a good old exorcism. So, some, <laughs> something I've been wondering, I've noticed. Because, I mean, I should tell because Andrew's known me so long, he definitely knows my trigger points and the things that freak me out. And they include eye violence and religious horror. And these have cropped up pretty prominently in our recent archive choices. Um, I remember back in the day, you, you would send me kind of emails with innocuous titles and then like excerpts from like American Psycho and stuff. So, or, you, or, or like links to horrorcore music. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just noticing a trend. I'm, I'm still not convinced it's a coincidence. It's a coincidence, you know? Like, you, I'm, know, you, I'm you not choose a hundred shows, you know, chances mm. are a few will be trigger points, you know? I'm not convinced he didn't know about the eye violence <laughs> in Masters of Horror. I'm just saying. I'm just, I still haven't got over that. But, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, but I, I guess it's apt, though, because we did watch the Exorcist films. Remember? We, yeah, we did. We did. During the last lockdown, because we didn't have the technological aptitude to record during a lockdown we ended up watching films simultaneously and we did Exorcist 2 and 3 yes. then. So in a way, that there's some continuity with Pilot Club. Yeah, there is. There I is. think there's, I something else, there's something else going on here as well. Let's, let's be honest. I thought it was appropriate and topical given what we uh -huh. did last year. Uh -huh. um, interesting, we never we never got to the, the Paul Schrader. No, I've still never, um, I've still never yeah, seen that. Exorcist. Or the Rennie Harlan. Or Rennie Harlan, yeah. Uh, or even what... Are the differences between the two? Are they the, the same two? film? Yeah, that's something I'm not sure of. Did Paul Schrader just recut it, or did he reshoot it? Yeah, it's uh, sure. it's a little bizarre, but yep. uh, we don't need to get into that so much yep. because we're doing the TV series, The mm. Exorcist, yep. which is actually a direct sequel to the original 1973 mm. film. So it ignores the mythology and all the happenings of the sequel and mm. and subsequent sequels, probably for the best, which given how awful well, I think <laughs> Exorcist Two was. Exorcist Two is probably the best one in the franchise. <laughs> Well, the locusts got you over the end. No, I'm, I'm just trying to... <laughs> the locust king? I'm, I'm just trying to... Like, uh, after our Blackbird discussion, I was just trying to get oh, some, right, some okay, more... Sure. Some more... Yeah, okay. Um, so, it is a direct sequel. Um, it stars Alfonso Herrera, who is mm. actually a Mexican actor and, and singer, mm. and uh, Ben Daniels, mm. who stars a pair of, of exorcists who investigate cases of demonic possession. Mm -hmm. But that gradually starts to crystallise by the end of this pilot. Um, and most of the pilot is actually the, the setup. Mm. So Alfonso Herrera plays a, a priest who is uh, tormented by visions of a possessed boy. Mm. Um, now, Alfonso Herrera's uh, character um, is a, a priest who uh, appears to you know, be leading a parish in, in America. Mm. And there is some suggestion that his family origin is in Mexico. Mm. And he has these, these premonitions or visions of this this child, um, which which indicates um, perhaps this sort of repressed mm. cultural heritage and uh, well, superstition. It, exactly. So it's got this. I kind of it's got a very similar feeling to the opening of The Exorcist. Like mm. I, I kind of think of mm. like Carl and I watched all of William Friedkin's films. Well, not all of them actually. We didn't get past the eighties a while <laughs> back. Um, and it's kind of funny. Like I feel like the French Connection, The Exorcist, 
and Sorcerer, maybe Cruising as well, but those three in particular are almost like a kind of globalisation trilogy insofar mm. as each one starts with these really distant narrative strands that eventually converge on America or Americans. Mm. Um, and so I feel like you get a very strong sense of that here. Like you've got this stuff happening in South America that then percolates back to America. It turns out the priest is Mexican, was born in America, moved back to Mexico as a child, uh, sorry, moved back to South America as a child and then returned to, or maybe he moved to Mexico, then returned to the United States. But yeah. there's, this, there's this anxiety about the United States borders being breached. Yes. And it's actually a bit where, you know, the kind of white family headed by Gina Davis. Yes. It's amazing to see Gina Alan Davis Ruck. again. I know, and Alan Ruck. <laughs> um, he says, it's, it's my mission to protect your house. So yes. that, that anxiety, the kind of, the, the demon or demons bringing in, arcane global forces <laughs> yes. is, is very much alive right. and present here there's a, yep. there's a sense here that also you know american catholicism has become very staid yes. very removed from its you know, cultural heritage yep. and kind of a dry you know metaphorical reading of the bible and this is something that's interesting because i feel like this is a moment um in the mid-teens where you had these films that were really interested in like almost like documentary style treatments of exorcism so mm. like like the exorcism of emily rose yeah. The Conjuring films, interested in presenting exorcism as kind of fact yes. and as part of kind of arcane Catholic law. Yeah. And this goes in a different direction, I think. I mean, it's, it doesn't claim to be based on true events in the same way, but because it's a television series, there's a different kind of reality effect to that as yeah. well. So I feel like it's a moment where, for whatever reason, directors are trying to reinvest the Catholic Church with this really, you know, terrifying kind of quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to that end, there's a real... There's and the, a real... Sorry, no, but the priest himself is a sceptic here, right? Yes. He starts off yes, as a sceptic. Yes, he denies the reality of demons yep. and suggests that they're just metaphors for mm. mental illness mm. and addiction. Mm. Uh, in quite a powerful mm. uh, little uh, meeting, a tete-a-tete mm. with uh, Gina Davis's character who insists that there is a demon in mm. her in her in her house i think so. she's a good scenery chewer too she is. i feel like she just chews scenery <laughs> she's like jeff bridges she's that you know that yeah. I- that ilk she's yeah. she's really good in it yeah so there's there's quite a lot of i think very effective uh framing yeah. devices here um suggesting a kind of gothic mm. narrative of the borderlands quite, of mexico it's quite scary yeah mm. there yeah absolutely mm. and um I, I think those are the strongest scenes mm. In this, when they're they're globe trotting, looking at you know you know these uh, you know real real life uh, exorcism scenarios. I, I like that investigative element too. Mm. Like, there's a great point where the priest travels to visit the another priest who performed the South American exorcism, and he goes mm. to DC to see. Is it in DC that he goes to see? Him? Yes, I think so, so. That almost like investigative element, like just tracing the path back to this other exorcism, but also back to the events of the original film. Yeah. I like that kind of quiet, brooding, procedural kind of quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like kind of what you wanted from Blackbird, almost. <laughs> and God, yeah. in spades. Yep. So I, I think that's that's a very effective mm. um, narrative for this. Now, I thought this was this was a fairly effective mm. um, retelling of, of the, you know, the classic exorcism type tale mm. with a fairly compelling lead character i you know i i don't I obviously it doesn't live up to the, the mm. you know the grand status of the of the original film um but it, it is nonetheless i think a, a fairly interesting televisual yeah remake of of or reimagining of what an exorcist um i agree you know, buddy buddy cop kind of uh procedural would look like i agree and i, I thought 
I thought this was kind of when it first started. I thought is this going to be a little bit nothing? Like is this just mm. going to be like? Have you seen the remake of The Omen, the film remake? No, of the, so I don't. I, I went through a, a period a while back where I watched all of the Omen films, and the remake is it's kind of it's got a similar feel to this. Like it's earlier, but just that kind of very muted, very parched look. It was a little bit bland. Where this, I wonder, was it going to be like that at first? But actually, I thought it was really effective. Like I thought it was true to the original film and original in itself in kind of different ways. So um, I thought, like, it's funny, when I first saw The Exorcist, like, one of the things that really struck me about it was how embedded it felt in New Hollywood. Mm. Like, it's a very, got a very gritty feel and a very bleak, kind of downbeat, depressive kind of vibe. It's like, you know, like, America in winter feel in the yeah. 70s, like that 70s sense of wintry kind of yeah. bleakness and drabness. Yeah, urban decay Urban too. decay, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I thought this really captured that. Like it's got a very, it's got a very depressive, downbeat mm. feel, mm. I think, kind that of was really effective. Kind of blue tone for the American yeah. scenes and then it washed out. This kind of, you know, uh, you know faded, yep. um, sepia-tinged yep. tone for the, the Mexico scenes. So mm. it's a nice little contrast there in the... In terms of the geography and the uh, the, the tonality of those yeah, those yeah. scenes, yeah, yeah. So I thought that really worked, but I thought there were some also some. Sorry, I almost knocked over my microphone again. <laughs> like at the beginning of the episode, I thought there were some interesting twists on it as well. Like I, in the original film and series, you have such a tangible sense of the demon, is it Pazuku, Pazuchu, yeah, as a kind of Pazuzu, Pazuzu, <laughs> as an individual demon and an individual character, whereas here. It's like that's been replaced by a more amorphous sense of dark spirits. Yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's a bit early on where one of the priests, the one who performed the exorcism, refers kind of menacingly to them. Mm. And there's a bit too where, yeah, like th- th- there's a bit where someone's talking about something on television, something and like don't 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 they say where there's one, there's probably a whole bunch. So like this, there's this sense that. What we're looking at is a kind of horde or a kind yeah. of collection of demons. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there's something as well about about seeing, you know, the uh, the margins, the kind of geographic geographical kind of the, the global south of mm. Catholicism, yeah, I agree. Of, you know, emerging across the border, flowing across the, the border, mm. and kind of infecting infecting the the uh, the old world. And that's something I was interested. Where, where was this? Where was it set? It was shot in Chicago. Okay. Oh, of course, the elevator train. Yeah. 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 It was interesting, yeah. I mean, interesting to the anger with Alan Ruck because mm. the the family that's being haunted, the um the father has got early onset Alzheimer's, yeah, and it, it's kind of come on in the last year, yeah. So there's already a kind of alien presence in their house. Mm. Like there's a bit where the priest comes over for dinner and the Gina Davis character is talking to the kids and you know one of the daughters is quite rude to the Alan Ruck character and you know, the mother says don't talk to your father like that and she says is that really my father? Yeah. Is that really who it is? So. There's this, I thought that was really effective too, having a character who's already somewhat uncanny. Mm. And sure enough, the demon first uses him as a conduit mm. when he's sitting in front of the television. And that television scene reminded me too of Poltergeist. Mm. And again, this sense that what we're dealing with here is not the familiar demon of the original, who becomes pretty ridiculous by the second film, mm. but some more amorphous collection of spirits, yeah. which I thought just gave it a different kind of quality and made it eerie in a different kind of way. Yeah, and obviously lends, lends itself more to that sort of serialised, serialised investigative exactly. narrative exactly. as well. Um, this was originally on on Fox. Yeah, right. So you can definitely see the little fades to black that represent the commercial breaks. Mm. And I think it does that 
you know, deals with the rhythms of a kind of mm. um, commercial television show mm. fairly effectively. Yep. Um, especially given this this uh, this content is probably a little bit unfamiliar mm. and maybe a little bit adult for commercial television. I wonder if the show too will gradually come back to those Georgetown steps. Oh, yes. That seemed, that, that's the epicenter of the kind of the whole universe. Yeah. That's almost like the main conduit to the supernatural world. Yeah. I sense the early scenes in Mexico... Like there's lots of low angle shots. You see the priest ascending this really dramatic, you know, like, yeah. you know, topography. To, yeah. And know. that's the, the classic exorcist MO, isn't it? Yep. You know, the, the tracking shot yep. and then the low angle framing yep. of the uh, of the house where the the terror yeah, yeah. Uh, lies inside. So it, it gets, I think it gets the aesthetics, yep. the stylistics of the exorcist uh, series. And I also appreciate that it didn't return to those Georgetown steps immediately. Yeah. Like it's just, it's biding its time. It, it's yeah. almost like it realises that, it takes a certain amount of effort to return to that yeah. primal scene. The Exorcist Three really, uh, really goes goes hard on those uh, well, on those on yeah. those stairs, doesn't it? But with such a different style, <laughs> I think in, in its own way, The Exorcist Three, I think, is circuitous. Yeah, like in its yeah. own, like I think it maps that, that staircase in detail. Yeah, goes <laughs> up and down it, circulates around it. Yeah, well, I think partly because the staircase is, is so iconic from the mm. first film, but mm. also because the staircase represents the horizon of what can be known mm. in the original film. Mm. Any subsequent adaptation has to approach it obliquely. And yeah. as you said, like The Exorcist 3 does that in a very through a very, very different kind of aesthetic style. Mm. Exorcist 2 does it by basically travelling over the whole world to get back to it. Yeah. And then fragmenting it. Yeah. Whereas this series I think will do it kind of by delaying it. Yeah. And just hinting at it. Yeah. Either through just Images, yeah. so you know when, when the when the priest just sees old newspaper footage, yeah. or through kind of cognate spaces. So yeah. in the beginning, the Mexican scenes where the other priest is ascending staircases, looking yeah. up at tall buildings, yeah. like climb, a st- a climbing stair- a mountain. Staircase peep show. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> that I appreciated as well. Like it, it, it seemed to have a sense of what was at stake, mm. you know, in returning to such an iconic horror space. And again, like I, I, I thought it. It's funny, like the original film is it's almost grating, like the kind of bleak, like, you know, there are very lush moments, but it is like that kind of 70s winter mm. that is the backdrop mm. of so much new Hollywood. <laughs> Perpetual winter in 70s new Hollywood. Perpetual isn't it? <laughs> winter, yeah. Just that, that bracing, bleak, depressive, downbeat, mm. down tempo kind of feel. Mm. I thought this really captured that well. Mm. So I, I thought it was true to the atmosphere of the original. It kind of got what was at stake. It added an interesting element in that multiple demon kind of quality. Mm. And it also continued that globalization fear yeah. in a kind of really powerful way. So look, I'm, I'm tempted to continue yeah. watching and I yeah. thought this was one of the... When I mean, you love exorcisms, you can't get enough of them. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm, you've got whole two whole series yeah, to that, really sink sink into, you know. Hopefully, hopefully there'll be some eye violence <laughs> in the next episode just to cement my two kind of primal fears in this, yeah. And look, maybe this is the reason why I've just moved in the opposite direction for my, my pilot club archive choice this week. Yeah, um, what's that? So I've gone with kind of comfort viewing. And it's interesting, I, I'm, I'm going back to the first series I ever binge watched. Oh. And it's Faulty Towers. Oh, so okay. have you ever watched Faulty Towers? A uh, little here and there. Okay, so my, my parents were obsessed with it. And you remember back in year nine, I think I had some pretty invasive surgery. And so I was bedridden for two or three weeks. Yeah. And I, I knew Faulty Towers off by heart, you know, already by that point. But for... Two, those two or three weeks, I did nothing but watch Faulty Towers wow. over and over again <laughs> on the video, the double video cassette, the double video set that we had. And I remember I tried to do other stuff like read or watch other shows, but I just kept coming back to Faulty <laughs> So, I mean, I'm going to rewatch the first episode, but I probably don't need to because I know it off by heart. Even now, because and I came to it the other day, I was just distracted or I felt like watching something comforting. So I looked up some of the old clips on YouTube and I was amazed at every beat 
I remembered every piece of decor I remembered. So it's burned in my psyche. And I think it was my first encounter with binge watching. So maybe because we've now had archive choices that have extreme eye violence and extreme <laughs> exorcism horror, I'm reverting back. <laughs> Childhood comfort comfort territory. I'm reverting memories. back to my most primal comfort binge watching <laughs> um, experience. And of course, it's a pretty canonical show. Yeah. You know, it's only 12 episodes. I do. I do. Ever made. I know, it's so, very, very limited. There's a, there's, a, there's a mythical 13th episode, which I've tried to hunt down for years, but it seems like it might be a bit of an urban legend. But okay. it's, it's extremely limited. And it's weird. The first episode we'll be watching is called A Touch of Class. And in my mind, it's funny because when they came out in the 90s, there were four videos, each mm. with three on them, each one a different colour. I always associate each episode with its video and its colour. Really? And it's actually, almost like a proto-series. Absolutely. But they didn't correspond to the order they came out in. Oh. So I, I tend to see the episodes in clusters of three, but they don't in any way correspond to... And But now, realising that, I, it makes sense of subtle changes in decor. Anyway, you can see I'm obsessed. So <laughs> next week, Faulty Towers, first episode of Touch of Class, just a bring it back from the from the, the trauma <laughs> of your last two choices um i'm billy i'm drew that was archive corner oh, that, sorry that was pilot Club. <laughs>